the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. It's a catchy tune, guys, isn't it? I'm not going to lie. Thanks again to my man, Ron Branch, of DrawingForLiberty.com for putting together the Lions of Liberty theme song that I know is stuck in all of your heads all day long, just like it's stuck in mine. And, of course, thanks to you guys, my dear, beloved listeners, for tuning in once again to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, one of the biggest points of conflict, I would say, among libertarians is that of strategy. While many of us tend to agree on the general principles of liberty, the ideas of individual rights, the non-aggression principle of not initiating violence against other people, the right to private property and self-ownership. But then we come to this question, how do we actually advance these ideas and see them take shape in society? You know, we want to be more than just a bunch of people that sit in a room just theorizing and philosophizing. That's important. That's actually the most important thing, because if we don't have the right ideas, what are we going to do with them from there? But besides that, we have to figure out a way to implement that philosophy in real life. One obvious answer, of course, is to just run for political office. Convince people you're the best guy for the job. Hope you can get enough votes, and then once elected, hope you can get enough of your colleagues to, I guess, ignore all the lobbyists, all of the crony capitalist money spewing your way, stick to libertarian principles, and actually roll back many of the rights-infringing policies of our current government. This, of course, presents a few practical problems. For one, most people in our society, believe it or not, are not libertarians. If they were, we wouldn't have a war on drugs. We wouldn't have imperial wars of aggression. We wouldn't have federal agents trying to take a rancher's cattle in Nevada. But because a large section of society doesn't currently hold these beliefs, they do not respect the ideas or understand the ideas of individual rights, it is difficult for real libertarians that stick to principle to make political progress. In response to this, some libertarians propose a rejection of politics altogether. They believe that if we disengage and just withdraw ourselves from the system, that the system will simply collapse upon itself. You know, we just stop using government services, stop using government money, use Bitcoin, and stuff like that. But that presents a problem as well. You know, it's a nice theory, but tell that to the guy getting a no-knock raid on his door at 3 a.m. because his nosy neighbor thought she smelled some weed... And then he gets shot because he has a natural response and maybe flinches for his weapon when he sees these people invading his home with ski masks. Yes, this actually happens all of the time. Because we live in this society where people simply accept that the government needs to have a war on drugs. They do not respect the rights of individuals to make their own choices about what they put in their body. So clearly we need to do more than just disengage, or people's rights will continue to be infringed. Others think we should, in fact, engage in politics, but that we can't really put the full libertarian message out there. They believe we have to quote-unquote play the game in order to work within the system and slowly, I guess maybe secretly, enact more libertarian policies before anybody even knows what happened. 
People are going to wake up one day and realize they elected all these libertarians, and, and now suddenly we have no war on drugs and no Federal Reserve, and everything's great. Of course, there is a third path. It's what you might call the Ron Paul method, where you do politics, you do run for office, but you stick to principle while doing so. And you hold the banner of liberty high. This is why Ron Paul inspired so many during his political run, even while being considered a political failure by the standard metrics of bills passed, winning primaries, winning the presidential election, stuff like that. Now, my guest today is currently a libertarian running for office. And we're going to find out just what strategy he intends to take during his run. He is a professor of finance at Ramapo College of New Jersey. His writing appears in several New Jersey publications, including The Record, The Star Ledger, and The Trenton Times. He is also the producer of a critically acclaimed documentary entitled The Federal Reserve, 100 Years of Booms and Busts. And if all of that weren't enough, he is currently a candidate in the Republican senatorial primary in New Jersey, vying for the opportunity to face Cory Booker for that Senate seat. Dr. Murray Sabrin, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for inviting me. Well, Dr. Sabrin, we really appreciate you coming on this week. Now, why don't you just start off by introducing yourself a little bit and telling people about yourself. You know, I know you've got a pretty interesting story about how you and your family first came to the United States. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about that? Okay. Uh, my parents were the only ones in their family to survive the Holocaust. I was born right after World War II in West Germany. We came to the United States in August 1949. My father wrote his great aunt who raised his mother in New York City in the early part of the 20th century. And we got our papers and we came to the United States in August 1949. We settled in the Lower East Side. Ten years later, they took me to the federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan. I raised my right hand and became a United States citizen. Ten years later, in 1969, after I cast my first vote for Hubert Humphrey in the presidential election year in 1968, I realized that the great society and the warfare state was going to be a disaster if we continue down that path. And so I became a Republican at the age of 22, a conservative Republican, a Jewish conservative Republican in the Bronx, which made me lonelier than the Maytag repairman. <laughs> and so uh, my intellectual journey uh, continued. I started reading um, objectivist literature, the Austrian school, libertarian literature. And Murray Rothbard was a member of my dissertation committee when I was a uh, a graduate student at Rutgers in the 1970s and got my PhD in 1981. And I've been a professor of finance at Ramapo College since 1985. I've run for office as a libertarian in 1997 for governor. We made political history when we raised enough funds to um, qualify for the debates with the Republican and Democrat candidate. Then I rejoined the Republican Party in 1999 and I ran for the United States Senate in 2000 and 2008. I wasn't successful in the primary running against establishment candidates. And so when uh, this race opened up in 2014 and no establishment candidate stepped forward, I said this would be a great opportunity to bring the freedom liberty message to the voters again in, in New Jersey, given that everything that those of us in the liberty movement for a long, long time have been warning about, the high taxes, the regulation, the uh, incessant spending, the uh, military interventions overseas, the denial of our civil liberties are all coming to a head. And I said this would be a perfect opportunity to win the Republican nomination and face off against um, 
Cory Booker, who, uh, from what I gather, doesn't know much about economics and finance, a very personable guy, very articulate guy, but his economic illiteracy is stunning for someone who's in the United States Senate. Well, Dr. Saber, that's quite an impressive resume and quite an impressive journey to your current spot running for Senate in New Jersey. And it's funny you mentioned back there uh, that when you, know, when you first became a Republican, you were a, a lonely Jewish Republican in the Bronx. Well, it's too bad you never ran into my dad, Alan Clare, because he was also a Jewish Republican conservative in the Bronx at that time. So that's how I, I got started in, in a small way in this liberty stuff. I was raised in a, in a very sort of conservative Republican household, and I'd say my journey, you know, moved towards the more libertarian ideas since then. But, you know, that's really interesting. You kind of came from that, a similar background in that way. You mentioned Murray Rothbard and your personal interaction that you actually studied a little bit underneath him. Can you give us a little more detail about how you first met Murray and, you know, what he was like and how he influenced you? It seems that uh, life is full of coincidences and happenstance. I read his article in the New York Times flying home from Italy in September 1971 his article that bashed President Nixon for imposing wage price controls and delinking the dollar from gold. And it was just a magnificent article, which just confirmed what I had been reading earlier in 1969 and 70 about um, how the United States government was headed toward bankruptcy. That's basically what Nixon did was declared bankruptcy by telling foreign holders of dollars they could no longer get gold for their dollars. And so uh, the following year, 1972, I started studying at Rutgers full time. And I came across a lot of his works in the library, and then um, I wrote him a letter and met with him at Brooklyn Polytech, where he was teaching in April 1974, and he got me an invitation to attend the first Austrian economics conference in South Royalton, Vermont, in June of 1974, where I met Joe Salerno and other young economists who have been part of the uh, Austrian libertarian movement since for the past 40 years. And so I became fairly good friends with Murray, and we communicated a lot on the telephone, and I would go in conferences and meet with him. And it was just an incredible learning experience, having your own tutor in Austrian economics and libertarianism at your fingertips. And I read all his works, his his major works, his minor works. And uh, it was just incredible that my intellectual journey took place with somebody who had the same first name as I did. (laughs) So that, I think, is, is an incredible coincidence. And he was just such a wonderful human being. For him to pass the scene at age 68, I think, was one of the great tragedies in uh, the history of uh, American libertarian intellectual movement, because in the age of the Internet, his works, his contemporary works, if he was still alive, would have reached hundreds of millions of people. But nevertheless, through the Mises Institute and uh, LouRockwell.com, his body of work is still reaching tens of millions of people around the world. And his legacy lives on. It's going to be read for a thousand years or more because of his enormous contributions and his uh, creativity in economics and uh, history and, um, and philosophy. Right, and you first met him at a time when uh, you could probably count the number of libertarians on uh, you know, one or two hands. So what are the odds that the two of them are actually named Murray? <laughs> well, that's, that's the great thing about um, being in the New York area. You're going to find so many interesting people. And he was a born and bred New Yorker. In fact, he grew up in the Bronx. And I moved there in 1953 when I was uh, six years old. And our paths crossed in 1971, 72, 73, 74. And it it was just remarkable that we were able to connect in a way that got me to where I am today, namely a professor of finance, uh, an author, a writer, a lecturer. And hopefully um, with everyone's support out there in the libertarian movement, uh, a U.S. senator, which would give me one of the biggest 
platforms and megaphones in the United States to uh, present the limited government, free market, non-interventionist platform to the American people so we can finally have a nation that's based upon these principles that Rothbard and I and others have been promoting for decades. Now, this is not the first time you have run for Senate. This is actually, I believe, your third run. So I'm curious, what was the first reason that you decided to just run for political office overall? And why specifically now do you think it's a time to do it again? Well, when I first ran for the Senate in 2000, Governor Whitman was in the race, and so was I. We were the only two in the race because no other establishment Republican was going to challenge a sitting governor in 1999. And then she dropped out of the race in um, in September of 1999, and then three other establishment candidates came into the race who had financial bases and uh, political bases around the state. So it was very difficult to overcome that hurdle. And so then in 2008, with Ron Paul's first campaign for the president in the Republican Party, I figured that would be great synergy for his national campaign and my campaign. I was his spokesman in New Jersey uh, for the campaign, representing him at various presidential forums when he couldn't be here. And so I got to meet a lot of people, and it was expounding the limited government perspective that Congressman Paul had been articulating as a member of the House of Representatives. So again, I was running against a couple establishment candidates, and they had political bases around the state, so that was difficult to overcome. And this time, since there's no Republican establishment candidate running, there are, I have the most name recognition, according to the polls, of all the candidates. And so with the ability to raise funds, which I hope to do over the next month, that will give us the resources to get the vote out for the June 3rd primary, we'll be able to win this primary and then go head-to-head with Cory Booker in the fall, which uh, would be a phenomenal opportunity to get the message out and to actually win. And by winning, uh, I would become, I believe, the most important Republican senator in Washington because New Jersey has not elected a Republican senator in 42 years. So that would be an incredible achievement, especially defeating our celebrity senator, who is so well-known and so relatively popular, but his knowledge of economics and finance is really a paper thin from all the people who I know who've heard him speak. In fact, one journalist told me, after you hear three Cory Booker speeches, you realize there's no substance there. Now, this is someone who's covered politics in the state of New Jersey for about 40 years. And so when I spoke to him two months ago, he said, Murray, you against Booker would be the most exciting race in the United States this year. I definitely want to get into Cory Booker a little bit, but first, why don't you tell us a little more about this first hurdle you have to go over, which is that Republican primary. You said there's no real other establishment candidates. So who are these other guys running against you, and why do you think you have such a great advantage over them? Well, there's this young fellow who, uh, for some reason, is getting these county lines, which are just basically endorsements by a small group of people at each county, but he has a very paper-thin resume. He has no platform other than saying that he's a loyal, proud Republican. And so I think uh, he will not be a major factor in the campaign. Then you have somebody else who's run as third party and run as a Republican also. And again, he's not well known in the state as well. And then you have uh, former um, U.S. Senate candidate Jeff Bell, who just moved to New Jersey again from Virginia, was defeated by Bill Bradley in 1978. And uh, his credibility is not very high in the state because he just came to New Jersey to run in the primary. So I'm the one that has the most expertise, the greatest depth of knowledge on these topics and has a message 
that will resonate with Republicans and independents and disaffected Democrats in, in the general. But in the primary, I've got to make sure I have enough resources to get our message out through mailers, TV, radio, cable. And that's where I'm counting on libertarians around the country in the state, conservative Republicans who are strong fiscal conservatives and people who are tired of all the big government uh, agenda of Obama and the Democrats to step up to the plate and help fund our campaign at murraysabrin2014.com. Now, tell us a little more about Cory Booker here. Let's just assume you can get past these three, uh, I don't want to use a bad word, let's just call them schmoes for now. <laughs> let's assume you can get past these three other schmoes and get over to Cory Booker. So tell us about this guy. He's pretty nationally well-known. There was actually a documentary I, I watched on Netflix about you know his run for, uh, I believe he was a mayor for a while before he won the special election to become the New Jersey senator last year. So what exactly is Cory Booker's deal? Why is he so popular? What makes him tick? And why are you the guy that can defeat him and become the first Republican senator in New Jersey in 42 years? Well, Cory Booker defeated Sharp James, who went to jail for corruption in Newark. He ran the place like a little fiefdom, sucking as much money as he can from the taxpayers. And so he made a lot of money as a mayor of, of Newark. Cory Booker comes in as a reformer. Uh, nothing much changes under his tenure as mayor. And now he has a blossoming scandal with the watershed authority that uh, provides water for Newark. And his law firm received a lot of money to do legal work for that watershed authority. And Booker got a, a huge severance, I think, uh, from that law firm. So there's a whole bunch of investigations taking place now that could be very unfortunate for Booker. But it just demonstrates that when you're a, a career politician, things come back to bite you because there are all sorts of um, entangling webs that you uh, have to deal with when there's so much money at stake, when you're a, a mayor of a, a city that has, I think, a, a well over a billion dollar, a multi-billion dollar budget. So these are the things that uh, eventually will, will come out during the campaign. But in the meantime, Cory Booker is an affable, attractive individual, but his depth of knowledge of national issues is paper thin. And so a lot of people vote upon appearances and personality as opposed to what this this candidate stand for. And we know what he stands for. He's going to rubber stamp uh, Barack Obama's agenda for as long as he's in the United States Senate. And so by being elected, we will have a new face in the United States Senate that will have an agenda 180 degrees opposite of Obama, which means that we will have an opportunity to stop his agenda for the last two years of his presidency and present the alternative, the free enterprise, constitutional republic agenda, a non-interventionist foreign policy, which will, I believe, could change the course of American history if people get energized across the country to elect people like myself, like Ron Paul, like other people, uh, Rand Paul, who has shown some strength in, in several of these issues, that could make a huge difference for the next 10 years in the United States Congress. Now, you mentioned how Cory Booker will likely be nothing more than just a rubber stamp for President Obama's policies. And in many ways, he reminds me of, of President Obama, you know, very affable, very likable, you know, very good with speeches in terms of how they sound, they how they kind of make you feel. If you're, you know, if I, if I kind of get out of my mind for a second and I'm listening to Obama, I, I almost start thinking he knows what he's talking about. But when you actually get to the substance and think about the actual words he's saying, you realize there's really no depth of knowledge behind that. 
The problem is that so many people don't really vote based on a time of depth of economic knowledge and that kind of thing. They do tend to vote for whoever is the most likable or the most affable. So how do you think we can get around that? How do we convince people to sort of, you know, look a little bit deeper into politics and look at things in a little more kind of thoughtful, uh, philosophical way? How do you intend to kind of get around that, you know, that current mindset that so many people have? Well, that's why debates would be important and forums that we would both attend because he's trying to get the youth vote like Obama did in 2008 and 2012. And I will also go for the youth vote because I've been saying on the campaign trail, this election is about young people, the students that I teach, the 20-year-olds and the 22-year-olds and 25-year-olds who are stuck with this huge unfunded liability over the next 50, 75 years to fund the welfare state that is bankrupting this country. Young people are primarily anti-war. They don't want to see the United States involved in all these uh, incessant wars around the uh, world. So we will have the uh, the anti-war vote. We'll have the pro-civil liberties vote. We will have the vote of people who really care about this country, the fiscal conservatives, uh, uh, the self-identified conservatives and libertarians, the uh, independents, the pro-lifers, the Second Amendment people. In other words, the type of voters that Ron Paul was reaching out to in, in his presidential campaign and the ones that are here in New Jersey. After all, Chris Christie won statewide twice. He defeated a sitting governor and he uh, overwhelmed his Democratic opponent last year, 60 to 40. When in the state that Republicans barely get over 40 percent in a statewide election, Governor Christie got 60 percent. I think I can replicate that in November because all the issues that I've been talking about are now at the forefront of people's minds. The tremendous assault on our civil liberties. This has never happened before in my lifetime. And so people are really angry about how they are viewed by their own government. Their own government views them as as an enemy of, of Washington, D.C. And so I think we have to coalesce that sort of frustration and ill feeling into a, a mighty movement here in New Jersey, which can then spread throughout the rest of the nation. And of course, Obamacare. Uh, this is one of the great disasters of uh, American public policy, where the government is trying to eventually take over health care, lock, stock and barrel. And people are frustrated. Their costs are going up. They're going to be treated like a number at the hospital uh, with all the uh, rules and regulations regarding health care. So all the issues that conservative, libertarian Republicans have been talking about for 40, 50 years are now coming to a head, which shows how government has overreached and expanded its heavy hand of regulation and taxes that make people feel very uncomfortable that they're living in the state where we're one executive order away from President Obama becoming the dictator. Two years ago, President Obama signed Executive Order 13603, which if he declares a national emergency, he literally will take control of everything from agriculture to transportation in America, and he will become the economic czar of America. That's the perilous time that we're living in, that we're living in a country where we could be an authoritarian society by one presidential address. And that's something that I will fight tooth and nail in the United States Senate. I think you really hit on something there with how a lot of people that may have been stuck in either apathy or just really kind of stuck in that mainstream left-right kind of uh, paradigm are starting to break out of it. And in a way, of course, we have the internet to thank where it's all we're all able to communicate in, in much easier, quicker ways. I can just make a podcast and toss it out there and you know, people all over the world can hear it. You know, But also, we kind of have to thank the government in a way because certain things they're doing are 
making people more aware of, you know, tyrannical policies, of, of the problems that can occur from a coercive government that, like such as we have. And you mentioned um, the NSA spying. My sister, who is a lifelong Democrat, progressive, you know, donates to the Democratic Party. You know, she is right straight down the line. You know, when these revelations came out, we were out with her and she actually asked me, you know, what do I think about this NSA stuff? And, you know, that just kind of blew my mind. What do you mean? What What is your little libertarian brother that you never cared about what he thought think? Why are you asking me that now? And, and you know, it's kind of the same thing with Obamacare. I'm seeing a lot of people... That really were either apathetic or maybe even Obama kind of Democrat supporters realizing they're getting the check in the mail now, just like I got, where their insurance is almost double the price it was before. Only you think maybe at least we get something better for that double the price. But no, I mean, personally, I, I got a you know a notice in the mail. Not only was my insurance doubling, I've got higher deductibles. I have worse coverage. So it, it really is something that, you know, I'm, I can't be the only one here. There's a lot of other people this is happening to. And like you said, it's really opening people's minds to, I guess, other ideas, other ways of thinking. And maybe hopefully, you know, looking past this kind of meaningless rhetoric that a lot of these guys like Obama and Cory Booker use. I think you're absolutely right, Mark. Young people, especially when I tell them about the unfunded liabilities, about uh, the spying that's going on, the uh, lack of uh, opportunities compared to uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even they are concerned about their future. Young people can't go out on their own anymore. They have to stay at home. They have to room with two, three, four people if they go out on their own. And so everything has become more expensive, even though the government is telling us inflation's in check. But I just got uh, an insurance premium um, for the apartment in the mail yesterday, and it's up about 8% from a year ago. So again, everything is going up more than the government's uh, 1% to 2% inflation rate. So the government is either lying to us or they have bad data about the true rate of inflation in the United States. And that's why people's uh, uh, standard of living is sort of stagnant, if not going down. The Federal Reserve, yeah, that's another issue that, you know, before Ron Paul and before, you know, guys like you and me after him started talking about this stuff so much, you never even heard anyone mention the words Federal Reserve. And now, if nothing else, you actually do see people talking about who the Fed chair is, you know, what the Fed is doing with QE, things like that, things you would never hear people talk about before. So I think we are, as you said, really in a prime time to be able to get these ideas out there to more people. How do you view the purpose of a political run for a libertarian? You know, there are many people in the libertarian movement that believe we can't just, you know, go out there and run out and deliver a full libertarian message. They think that libertarians need to sort of hedge their words or else we might scare people away from this idea we need this massive coercive government running our lives. So, I mean, how do you plan to run your campaign? Do you plan to kind of tread safely within the current political paradigm, or are you going to unabashedly put that libertarian message out there? Well, the, the message is very simple. I mean, we can't change uh, Washington overnight. So what I've said on the campaign trail is, listen, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution. As a United States senator, I will take that oath again. And most of what the federal government does is unconstitutional, so we can't get rid of it overnight. But what I will do is, as a U.S. senator, only vote on a budget that starts to reduce spending. I will not vote for a budget that increases from one year to the next. So that's a strategy in order to get the people in Congress to say, listen, if you want my vote for the budget, it has to go down three, five, seven percent a year so we can get it down to what is uh, authorized by the Constitution. We got to talk about the Fed and what it does and audit the Fed and talk about 
getting rid of a QE so people can get a, a normal rate of interest. When I talk about getting a zero rate of interest on our savings, when we should be getting 4% on our savings, people realize they're getting ripped off by the Federal Reserve that is basically subsidizing uh, Wall Street and all the speculators out there. Uh, when I talk about foreign policy, I said, how many wars do we need? We need to take care of our business here at home. We need to um, stop interfering and meddling in other people's affairs. Uh, we wouldn't like it if people interfered in our affairs here in the United States. And as Ron Paul said the other day, um, why do we care whose flag flies in Crimea? That's their problem. Uh, people that can't even find Crimea on a map, according to a recent poll. So you talk about things that are common sense, that are basically a libertarian conservative message that is based upon the Constitution. Support for the Bill of Rights, our support for the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Ninth and Tenth, all the amendments that are crucial to have a limited government in Washington. And we can uh, quibble over what limited government is, but to me, limited government is following the Constitution. So that means getting the government down to size, giving young people the opportunity to save for their own retirement so they can uh, take the money that they earn and save it the way they want rather than um, be part of a, a social security system that is financially unsustainable. The same thing with healthcare. They can be in a healthcare system where they are in control of their healthcare dollars instead of uh, uh, funding, uh, again, a financially unsustainable program like Medicare. Those programs have to continue as long as we have beneficiaries. Otherwise, you'd have chaos in America. So the point is to have a transition like other countries have had transitions from communism and socialism to more market-oriented economies. So we have to begin that process right away, and I hope to start that process in January 2015 when uh, being sworn in as a United States senator. Now, you mentioned Dr. Ron Paul in there, and of course, Dr. Paul is someone who has inspired so many millions of people to become interested in the ideas of liberty, to become interested in politics. Earlier, you also mentioned his son, Senator Rand Paul, and you know he's doing a pretty strong job in the Senate now, and I think overall he is doing a, best, a very good job. He probably is undoubtedly the best senator we have right now. Of course, at the same time, you know, Senator Paul has become under a lot of fire, a lot of criticism from other libertarians yours truly included at times. And I think, you know, a lot of that reason is they, they see so much. When they look at Rand Paul, they see, they want to see Ron Paul. They want to see everything that they saw in Ron Paul, sort of an unabashed libertarian message. Although at times it seems like he does kind of do that, sort of hedging the words a little bit, maybe trying to mix in some sort of establishment rhetoric. You know, he talked about how any attack on Israel is an attack upon the U.S. He has supported the concept of sanctions um, against Iran, possible sanctions against Russia even. So I'm just curious, what is your overall opinion of Rand Paul and the job he is doing? And, and what do you think about people that do criticize him for, you know, a, a policy here and there? Well, obviously he's very popular. He's been... Um He's been out front on a lot of issues, appearing in national media. And so, uh, again, as someone who believes in very limited government, that's what I learned at the feet of Murray Rothbard and others who, uh, who saw government as, as a threat to peace and civility and, and prosperity. Sanctions, I think, are not in the best interest of the American people. They're, as Ron Paula said, sanctions are basically an act of war. I was in Cuba last year. We should lift the embargo on Cuba and people can trade. I mean, that's a fundamental right that all people have is to trade with each other no matter where they live. 
sanctions to me are hurt the very people you're trying to help and they don't accomplish anything because the government is not affected by the sanctions it's basically the uh the average person in the street that's affected by sanctions uh, when it comes to israel that's more problematic because the united states has made this commitment to israel but as uh prime minister netanyahu said in the united states congress a couple of years ago he said, we don't need America's help. We're strong enough to defend ourselves militarily. So let's take him for his word. Israel has one of the strongest armies in the world, one of the strongest militaries in the world. They've shown that they can uh, fend off any attack. And so uh, we should not be embroiled in entangling alliances, as George Washington said. I firmly believe that's the right policy for the American people. We should have commerce with all and no entangling alliances. And we should work toward a more peaceful world through diplomatic um, initiatives. To me, that's what I would do in the United States Senate by being a member, hopefully, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is that to look at the world and say, listen, life is very short. We're lucky if we get 60, 70, 80 years in. And uh, people want to live in peace and in harmony and to increase their living standards for themselves and, the, and their children. So that's the goal that we should have as members of the United States Congress. And that's what I think people aspire to all over the world. It's funny that Netanyahu would say that he doesn't need the help of the United States because he certainly has no problem continuing to cash the checks, continuing to accept uh, you know all the military aid and all of that. So that, that's interesting that he would you know it's just another politician I suppose just kind of saying one thing and then acting in another way. Now, Dr. Sabrin, before we let you go, I just want to give people more of an idea about some a few more of your policies. So if you don't mind, I kind of just do a speed round here. I'm just going to toss a couple phrases at you, get your quick position on it, and then maybe talk about you know what a move you might make in the Senate, something you could actively do to kind of influence policy in this way, if that's all right. And you know, we kind of touched on foreign policy already just now, so I'll, sure. skip, sk- I'll skip over that. But um, just a few other phrases. First one is the war on drugs. Well, here's here's another example of government trying to do good with uh, the heavy hand of government, and it's been counterproductive. We tried it with prohibition. It didn't work. Um, I I think more and more people are realizing, especially law enforcement officers, that uh, this is a counterproductive policy, and so we have to rethink the whole policy. But I think most people are not there yet. I think uh, marijuana is becoming legalized around the country because I think people realize anyone who smokes something, and tobacco is a lot more harmful, that's their choice, and it may not be a very good choice, but we should not be prosecuting people for making bad choices. After all, we don't send people to jail for being alcoholics or um, or doing anything badly to themselves. What about the debt? What can, you mentioned that $17 trillion debt we have just keeps going up and up and up every day. What can be done about that? Well, I think what we can do about that is get to a balanced budget as quickly as possible, which means cutting the size of government by hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars over the next several years to get us to a balanced budget which means that we would get to a constitutional budget. This is what I talk about on the campaign trail. We have a budget that's $4 trillion. A constitutional budget would probably be about a trillion dollars or maybe even less. And so we've got to work toward that. The point that Rothbard always used to make in analyzing politicians is, are they working toward more freedom? And that's what I would be doing, working toward more freedom and less government. And that's the thing that you can do as a United States senator. And one more, what about taxes? Everyone's talking about how high their taxes are, their taxes going up. What would you do about taxes? And what is an appropriate level, if any, of taxation on the federal level? Well, from a constitutional perspective, you have the 16th Amendment, which says the government can tax us. The question is how much? That's the issue. And of course, the income tax is one of the worst taxes there is because it invades our privacy and it uh, causes all sorts of economic harm. 
I would advocate reducing tax rates year after year after year until we can get the tax rates down to where they're close to zero as possible because um, all the things that the federal government does, we can do at the local level or at the nonprofit level or the profit level. And so if you look at what the government does, it's counterproductive to its goals. And that's why Peter Drucker in an article in the Wall Street Journal said we should abolish the welfare state lock, stock and barrel and allow the nonprofits to deal with social services as opposed to the government programs. And so I would work in that spirit of Peter Drucker's conclusion that the welfare state should be abolished. And one more thing I want to touch on real quick is uh, this documentary you made. It's called The Federal Reserve, 100 Years of Booms and Busts. What exactly inspired you to make that documentary, and why is the issue of the Federal Reserve so important for Americans to understand? Well, as everyone knows, last year was the 100th anniversary of the uh, Federal Reserve Act, so I got two grants to put together a very modest uh, documentary, which we showed at Ramapo College December 4th. It's available on YouTube, so if people uh, go to YouTube and uh, and punch in the Federal Reserve 100 Years of Boom and Bust, they can see it. For a 55-minute documentary, we did it on a shoestring budget. And on April 17th, we're doing a symposium on the uh, 16th Amendment based upon Frank Chodorov's book, uh, The Income Tax, Root of All Evil. It's the 60th anniversary of his book. And we're working a documentary around the symposium. So that'll be available later this year as well. So 1913 was a critical year in American history. We got two institutions, which have caused so much harm to the American economy and allowed the federal government to spend, spend, ring up the debt, the income tax and the Federal Reserve. So I think this is one of the goals I want to do is to bring to the public's attention how these two institutions should be either abolished or reformed in a way that does not do any harm to the American economy. Dr. Murray Sabrin, thank you so much for joining me here today on the Lines of Liberty podcast. I'm personally really excited about your Senate run because I can just imagine a debate between you and Cory Booker. I know they're going to do everything in their power to make sure that never happens, but it's something I would certainly like to see. And I should point out to everybody out there, I believe I mentioned earlier, Dr. Sabrin has been endorsed by Dr. Ron Paul. So he's definitely got a stamp of approval of someone that, you know, a lot of libertarians look up to. Dr. Sabrin, before I let you go, just want to run through how can people contact you? get involved with the Murray Sabrin 2014 campaign? Well, the website is there, murraysabrin2014.com. If they're in the uh, New Jersey area, the metropolitan area, they can sign up to be a volunteer to help us get out the vote, work the phone banks when we get closer to the primary day, and of course, uh, help fund the campaign, which will allow us to get the vote out for June 3rd. This is critical. Uh, we're now in the critical phase of the campaign by getting enough funds in, and we have a modest budget of $200,000 to do that. We will win this primary, and then when we win the primary, we'll raise enough money to challenge Cory Booker in the fall. And by winning this election, I believe we can change the course of American history by electing the first Republican senator in New Jersey in 42 years. And that gives me one of the biggest platforms in the United States, being on all the Sunday talk shows, being the person that the media will go to about all these critical issues. So there's a lot at stake here. And if the liberty movement wants to advance to the next level, I think um, it's incumbent upon everyone to get behind uh, my candidacy because I think we could do over the next six years something that people only dream about is to help restore liberty in America. Dr. Murray Sabrin, everybody, thank you so much for joining me today on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And I wish you the absolute best of luck in your political run. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure of being with you today. This is Ben Swan, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. 
Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to youth through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Okay, guys, we are back from break. Thanks for sticking with me through my little commercial break there. You know, I can't do this alone. I couldn't do this podcast without some great people helping me out along the way. Couldn't do it without people like Ron Paul running for political office and inspiring me and interesting me more in advancing the ideas of liberty. Couldn't do it without my awesome editor, John Dobbert, who helps make my... I don't know. So, so voice sound just magnificent by the time it gets to your ears. And I put his words in the proper order. Then I have to do all the things with the music, the intros, the outros, fans clapping. They're all over the place. They come into my room and just start clapping. I have to edit that to make it in the right spots. It's just so much to do. And I certainly couldn't do it without my great sponsors. And I couldn't do it without you. You. Yes, you. Listening right there. You're the way that I'll go. You're the morn that I'll wake to. So please, guys, if you enjoy the show, if you like what you hear, do me a tiny little favor. Tell a friend about it. Share a link to your favorite episode on Facebook or the Twitter. And you can go check out the archive at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast if you're new to this thing. We've had a lot of great guests on here, so check them out. Interact with us on our social media. Facebook, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Over at Twitter, at lionsofliberty. Find us at Google+. Plus. You can find it all over from our website, lionsofliberty.com. Because ultimately, the listeners, you guys, are the reason why I do this. If you guys aren't listening, I ain't podcasting. And the more people that we can get on board, the bigger and better we can all make this thing. So please, if you enjoy the show, I just ask you to share it. Not asking for money, not asking for anything. Just asking for you to tell some friends about something you enjoy. And maybe, 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 
If you subscribe on iTunes, you can go over, give our show a little rating, give us a comment, help us get a little more traction there. Because, guys, if we're going to advance the ideas of liberty, there is no doubt we can't do it by remaining a small, kind of fringy niche group. We need to get other people interested. We need to make libertarianism go mainstream. And, you know, of course, I also could not do this show without some great guests. And what a great guest Murray Sabrin was today. It seems clear to me that Murray would not be going to Washington if he were elected to cut deals or play games or just go there to gain some sort of power over others. He would be going for one reason, and that is to advance the ideas of liberty. The same mission we have over here at Lions of Liberty. Now, I know what a lot of you are probably thinking right now. You know, Murray Sabrin sounds like a great guy. He has a solid grasp of libertarian principles, but come on. A Republican senator in New Jersey? Beating Cory Booker? This flashy, charismatic guy who has this whole documentary about him? Who just seems so cool? That may sound crazy, but I offer you this. Number one, let's say Murray Sabrin does have no chance to win whatsoever. Let's just accept that premise for a minute. With his knowledge and his ability to communicate with others, he can serve that kind of Ron Paul role and educate many other people along the way. I mean, that alone, to me, makes him very worthy of our support. And if you break it down, it does seem like this primary, at least his initial contenders in the Republican Party, are not very strong. It seems like a very winnable race. If he can just get a little of that money from us and get that backing, he can really push ahead of the pack. I I honestly do think he has a real chance to do that. And now let's say he gets past that primary. If he can actually get into a debate with Cory Booker, who is a nationally known figure, there is no doubt that this race could draw some national attention. And even if it's true that he would have no shot against Cory Booker, and I'm not even convinced of that, these debates would draw a lot of attention, a lot of interest. We're at a crazier time right now. People are starting to think a little bit differently. People are viewing interventions the same way. People don't really like Obamacare and NSA spying. Maybe they'll be a little wary of a guy like Cory Booker, who, as Dr. Sabre mentioned, is basically a rubber stamp for all of Obama's policies. And number two, what if, just what if, what if Murray Sabrin could actually win a Senate seat? Crazier things have happened, after all. Chris Christie, a Republican, became the governor in New Jersey. So it's clear Republicans can win races there. And I can just imagine Dr. Murray Sabrin up there giving a filibuster, giving a 10-hour speech on the Federal Reserve, giving a 15-hour speech against the war on drugs, giving a 20-hour speech promoting a peaceful foreign policy. Who knows? But I can say the idea of having a guy like Dr. Murray Sabrin in Washington doing what he does can only be a positive for liberty. So please check him out. At least go to his website. See what he has to offer. MurraySabrin2014.com And it's political season, guys, so we're going to try to have more guys running for office on this show. Both libertarians and maybe some non-libertarians. If you guys have anyone to recommend that you think I should talk to, they don't need to be libertarians. I'm happy to have people on with opposing viewpoints. I just want someone willing to engage in a real, honest conversation. And I think we're going to get one next week. Because I've got another guy running for office as well. In the state of Georgia, 
Another guy running on the Republican ticket, trying to win that primary. He's a guy many of you may be familiar with from his videos on YouTube that have become popular during Ron Paul's run. He's better known as Timot, the Minister of Truth. Yes, Derek Grayson will be on Lions of Liberty podcast next week. Really excited to talk to him. He's a great guy. Go check out some of those videos. Just Google Timot. Look it up on YouTube. I guarantee you will be entertained and informed. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Monday through Friday, the morning roar. That's right. Every morning, Monday to Friday, you can come to lionsliberty.com, and you will find the morning roar, which is just a little roundup of some stories that you know you may not see on CNN. You might not even see in your regular news feed, your social media. We go out and try to find some stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and try to give you, you know, a little bit of our liberty perspective on those stories as well. So be sure to come back and check the morning roar. Of course, every Monday we've got our longest-running feature, Mondays with Murray, where we go back and take a look at a passage, a video, an article by the great libertarian Murray Rothbard. And every Thursday, you will have a new edition of this show, the Lions of Liberty podcast. You can find it over at our website before it's shot out there to the rest of the world on Daily Paul Radio. And then every single Friday, of course, we have Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt... You know, went off Jim Beam, and it opened up my mind, and goes out and tries to find a story about some sort of felony take a little look again at something that you might not see in the mainstream media not just things being committed by the police state but felonies committed by politicians by average citizens people that commit crimes that maybe shouldn't be felonies we take a look at the whole thing so we've got a lot going on at lionsofliberty.com so come and check us out regularly that's in addition to all sorts of our regular features our other contributors James Miller, Bionic Mosquito, Daryl Walters. We've got all sorts of great guys contributing to our site. And hey, if you're interested in contributing, email Mark, M A R C, at lionsofliberty.com. Yes, I'm alive, and I am kicking. No, you won't knock the life out of me. Please, guys, live long and live free. John Gawker.